2: Hello and welcome to Changing Politics. This is the podcast where we talk about the week's news as well as finding something you can do to change the way the world is. I'm Rila Conte. And I'm Gronje McGuire. If you've listened to the first two episodes, firstly,
3: thank you. But also, you'll have heard about Shaney's Law, a private members' bill that will prevent the deaths of people in police custody. Well, we have news about that.
2: Yes, the bill passed its third reading in Parliament, meaning that it now goes to the Lords and will be back in the autumn to be hopefully made into law. So thank you if you're one of the hundreds of people who emailed their MP asking them to turn up and prevent it being filibustered. You can see the video of the bill passing
3: on our Twitter feed, at changingpolypod.com. And seeing as we're talking social media,
2: why not like our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash changing Paul. Also, please subscribe to this podcast as well as rating and reviewing it if you feel like it, because that helps other people find out about the show. This week, we'll be talking about what you can do to help refugees
3: with the help of Lord Alf Dubs and a Syrian refugee. But first, let's
2: talk about the week's news um uh marie it's been a bit of a quiet week hasn't it i know just boring like, i just slept through it to be honest like do you know what happened or <laughs> uh i think there was a bit of drama a bit of drum drums <laughs> <laughs> a lot of messy bitches. <laughs> oh god yeah no, those resignations i mean i kind of enjoy the way when from Kenny you, you know, shock horror david davis mm-hmm. and then you know kind of like the next day oh my god boris johnson and then whoa Ben Bradley resigning as vice chair of the Conservative Party. And then PPSs resigning as well from their very, very minor roles in government. People you had never heard of who decided to take a stand, write a letter to the Prime Minister and then tweet that letter to just, you know, really stick it to... To the Remainers, I guess.
3: <laughs> so, of course, this has been the news that after what seemed like uh, Theresa May's halcyon triumph in checkers, where everybody had agreed uh, on this plan of what Britain were going to want from Brexit, it lasted a day and a half. Then David Davis resigned, then Boris. And then it seemed like the whole cabinet collapsed like a hastily made bit of crap from Ikea. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, the thing is, I wonder, and I, I'm not sure, obviously, you know, I've got a very good track record of being wrong about predictions, like, you know, over like the past few years, but I wonder if they've not kind of shot themselves in the foot, like the kind of hard Brexiteers, because actually... David Davis and Boris Johnson were really not helpful in government. And actually, I mean, we're not sure what to expect from Dominic Raab yet as Dex secretary. And we don't know what to expect about Jeremy Hunt at the FCO. But we do know that, for example, you know, Jeremy Hunt has always been quite a loyal secretary of state. So, you know, he will not bluster and like, you know, just do whatever he wants to do like Boris. So, I, yeah, I, I wonder if it might not actually have been cleverer for them to stay and kind of... Argue for their case inside the cabinet.
3: Yeah, you said uh, they've been a bit lackluster. So, David Davis has spent four hours in total negotiating in Brussels this year. To put in context, I have spent four hours updating my Ed Miliband Harry Potter fan fiction Tumblr blog. And I'm not getting paid for
2: that, and that's not changing the course of British politics, though it should. (laughs) So what has he been up to? I'm not entirely sure, because I feel like, you know, we've known for quite a long time now that, you know, Number 10 and top Mandarin Ollie Robbins have mostly been in charge of the negotiations. So generally, it has been quite unclear what David Davis really has been up to all this time.
3: Now, Boris Johnson famously, before he decided he was going to go for Brexit, wrote a letter arguing... So one letter for... Brexit and one letter for Remain. Do you think this is why he's done so little as a foreign secretary? For every decision he makes, he has to write a letter why it's good and he has to write a letter why it's bad. So he had to write a letter why it would be good to get a British Iranian system extra time in prison. And then he had to write a letter why he thought maybe that wouldn't be such a good idea. And this is what's been, you know, slowing his flow as a foreign secretary.
2: <laughs> well, I think that, okay, there's two things about Boris. Like the first one is actually like he genuinely is very into and I think that, you know, when he wrote those two letters, obviously it was partly, I guess he was genuinely quite torn. And that's something I've heard from people who've worked with him at City Hall in even in journalism on Whitehall. He is apparently sort of like chronically indecisive. So I think, you know, that probably can't help. But also I think that... I'm not sure he ever, he ever was going to enjoy being a cabinet minister, if that makes sense. I think he wanted to become one and mm-hmm. the same way that, you know, he still probably, presumably, wants to become prime minister. But I think that's more kind of like ambition, a kind of like sense of restless competition that he has as opposed to going, you know, I want that job because I think I'd be good at it. Uh, that for me is
3: like ultimate male privilege, being like oh, bless his heart, he's just rubbish at making decisions. <laughs> you have to like give him the benefit of the doubt. Bless his heart. He's just really indecisive <laughs> but he'll still be an amazing Prime Minister. He's just really flaky and heart doesn't know his own
2: mind. <laughs> That's just Boris. And I know, completely and I think, you know, it's, it's a massive class thing as well because you get, again, you know, that, that kind of group of people overwhelmingly Men around politics who it's kind of a game, isn't it? You mm-hmm. know, everything's a game, everything's fun, and actually, you know, because like nothing will have real life consequences for them. Like Cameron and Boris was like a good example to see they'd known each other for a long time, never really liked each other. So this kind of, you know, like I want against see this round, and you know, you might win against me that round, whatever. So it's all again, yeah, it, it feels like a parlor game.
3: So do you think Brexit could have been avoided if David Cameron and Boris Johnson had like just gotten better at secondary school? <laughs> I mean, maybe. Honestly, who can tell? I just feel sorry. Like, imagine being Boris Johnson's conscience. Do you remember Pinocchio? He had, like, Jiminy Cricket going, don't do it, don't do it. But I think the difference with Boris Johnson is Pinocchio, whenever he lied, his nose grew. I don't
2: want to know where that sentence is.
3: Boris Johnson gets a boner. There you go. (laughs) You're a bit of an expert on the Johnsons, aren't you? <laughs> Again, did not know where that <laughs> sentence
2: was going. Um, I am. I did write a very long piece about the Johnsons earlier this year, which was quite fun, though it took so long. I by the end kind of felt that like, you know, you know, when you kind of like binge watch something on Netflix like you know for several days on end you don't really see anyone you just do that and then you kind of have that sense of shame afterwards because you feel like you know the cast members <laughs> of that show better than you know yourself or your family i kind of had that with the johnson siblings but you know nothing you know actually like researching all that was really revealing because you know you've got stuff like so stanley johnson who is obviously like boris's dad there's a quite fun story about him but i think when he was at school or at university and there was this grand prize where you had to write this sort of like impossibly long essay about a you know so sort of, like serious but niche topic he discovered it the day before and was like oh you!" like you know I really want to win this and she just stayed up all night wrote it and then won mm-hmm. you know so there's kind of that culture of like winging it and I think so when was it I want to say it was when Boris ran to be London Mayor but I can't fully remember but so his dad wrote a column in The Spectator because apparently if you're a posh English family that is how you communicate with each other <laughs> as a side note effectively saying well you know I saw Boris when he was a child when he was at Eton and he was meant to play one of the main characters in a Shakespeare play in the in the school play had not learned his lines, so he basically sort of like fluffed it and made something up and made everyone laugh. And Stanley was effectively like, "Look, if he can do this, surely he can. He can just be in politics and he'll be great as well." And it's like, "No, no, no, no. These are two very different things. Like two extremely literally could not be any more different." So you know, there were and I think there's that yeah incredible sense of competition among the kind of like Johnson siblings as well. Mm-hmm. And Boris has spoken about that before, saying that, you know, I had a kind of wonderful sort of, like, you know, very early childhood and it was brilliant and beautiful and all got ruined the second my sister Rachel was born because I was no longer the centre of attention. And then obviously, so Leo and Joe followed. And there are so many so many stories, literally, literally countless stories about kind of, like, sibling rivalry, including one of my favourite ones is when um, Rachel allegedly called Boris. So, like, a good few years ago now and was like, oh, God, Boris, did you... Uh, did you hear the terrible news about Joan? Boris is like, one is a, he got a first at Oxford. <laughs> Oh my God! So they're, they're, they are this really weird family and I think their parents, or at least mostly their father, I don't think their mother really did to the same extent, but I kind of encourage them to always, always be into that incredible competition with each other from age like zero. And I feel like that, that kind of explains so much about the persona of Boris.
3: What's interesting about your story about the play, so what happened was Boris didn't prepare put the whole play in jeopardy, nearly sabotaged it for all his friends and through sort of arrogance kind of winged it. And he was like, so that means he'd be an amazing politician. Yep, literally, yeah. <laughs> it's like, what is it? Abraham Lincoln, he had a sort of a cabinet of rivals to help... Survive the American Civil War, so that seems to be the same attitude uh, the Johnsons have to rearing children. <laughs> Trust no one. Um, what What did you think of that picture? What do you think of Boris's that he he posed? Oh, god, his, like what filter do you think he put
2: on that? <laughs> I love that the pictures were actually quite expensive, so I think they were 150 200 a pop. And I used to work on a picture desk and I can tell you that's actually quite a lot of money. Like normally it's about like 50, 100. But again, yeah, that, that is the Boris thing where, you know, everything has to be an event, everything has to be drama. And I think his letter to the Prime Minister was quite revealing as well because it was like romantic nearly sort of like view of life where everything, yeah, ev- everything needs to have a narrative and everything needs to sort of like heroes and villains and adventures. But that's not, you know, that's partly what politics is, but that's not what most of politics is. That's a Just William story.
3: <laughs> you didn't, you Did you see the alternative picture he nearly used? I did not. That was just him shitting in Theresa May's desk, but they decided (laughs) not to go with that one.
2: Speaking of Theresa May. Oh, uh... (laughs) speaking of Theresa May. Have you seen that the Daily Telegraph has gone mad? Oh,
3: what voice of the people? The Telegraph? Surely not.
2: Well, yes, the Telegraph readers have accused Theresa May of treason, which, you know, in fairness... The People who write to news, newspapers are always a bit mad, so fine. <laughs> but it's about the Telegraph, i decided to fully embrace that and is now in and published it and kind of like you know splashed quite big on that. So, so yeah, everything is going extremely well in the British media.
3: I love like the average age of a Telegraph reader must be so old that <laughs> you could. Did the, were they the people who got Anne Boleyn locked up, <laughs> like
2: um they're actually so I, I my first job in journalism was at the Telegraph a few years ago, and there was a kind of dark joke. um we had in the office with a few friends of going. each one of those is a Telegraph subscriber dying. (laughs) Because, you know, because they were so old, because we knew that, you know, I can't remember what the median age was, but it was bunkers.
3: What (laughs) what I thought was so funny about that was the Telegraph had like a letters page, looking at all these people writing us letters. It's like, the only people who write letters now
2: are people who are writing their will I go that's one of my that reminds me of a, it's so bleak but um, I love the fact that um, Conservative Party correspondents with their members they'll send at the bottom there'll normally be something being like hey don't forget about us and your will oh. <laughs> so you know, you know your audience and I respect that
3: um, so there were other reshuffles of the back of Boris and David's messy bitchness, Uh, Jeremy Hunt has become foreign secretary, which means in 12 months' time, he'll be trying to surreptitiously privatise France or claim that more people die if they visit foreign countries on the weekend. How do you feel about his promotion?
2: I am intensely neither here nor there about Jeremy Hunt at the FCO. I've tried to come up with an opinion. it's It's been several days now and I've tried really hard to come up with an opinion. And I have none. I think... It was quite a good move for him because he really was, you know, the longest serving health secretary in, you know, in the history of British politics <laughs> and is actually still liked in the party. <laughs> so I, th- I think, you know, that was quite a good thing for him to kind of, you know, occupy, like get to the one of the great offices of state. But yeah, no, I mean, Matt Hancock at Health, I'm not entirely convinced. I feel like DCMS... Really made sense for him because he clearly loved it. He is passionate about digital. He's kind of passionate about mm. arts, and you know, I think what was it like? He renamed himself the Secretary of State for the uh, things that make life worth living, which is adorable <laughs> and really dorky. In the meanwhile, Jeremy Wright, um, you know, is not like what a, what a weird choice because he effectively, you know, has not tweeted. I think since twenty fifteen, I think his only. Interest connected to the DCMS brief, as far as we can tell, is that he plays cricket so badly, I quote, that no one wants to play with me. And he used to play the trombone or the trumpet, and that's that. So that was a bit of a weird, weird move. So I don't know. And also, is the fact that, you know, it was just white men. Mm -hmm. And when Downing Street was asked about that, they said, well, you know, Theresa, like the Prime Minister, just wants, what was it, like the right people for the right jobs or something along those lines. (laughs) And it's like, hmm. Hmm, just white
3: men are just better at things. I think that's the lesson we've learned. I was uh, really upset that Matt Hancock has become the health secretary because I have just deleted my Matt Hancock app. So I don't know how I'm going to get a doctor's appointment now. (laughs) So Boris is gone. He's lying low, but he will come back. He's like the shark in Jaws. Do you think he's... Or cancer. (laughs) (laughs) He's gone into remission, but he could be back. Mm. What are his plans now? Do you think he'll get a lot of support from backbench MPs? Is he popular?
2: I don't think so. I think that, you know, he never... He never truly had that kind of base of support to start with. I think the reason why lots of Conservative MPs liked him for quite a long time was because he was the most popular politician in the country. And obviously, you know, if your goal is to win elections, then obviously you'd back the person who's the most likely to make you win that election. That being said, A, you know, his support is not what it used to be. But B, I think, you know, a lot of Conservative MPs are just really, really tired of his Mm behaviour And he's kind of, like, lack of professionalism. And, yeah, I mean, the, the way that, you know, over the past few weeks, like, several of the things he did or said were just, like, genuinely openly mocked on Twitter by Tory MPs. And even, like, you know, I was talking to a Tory MP the other day who, um, you know, his reaction was basically like, well, you know, actually, the good thing is, if my constituents, you know, kind of come to me and they're like, oh, well, you know, what do you make of the checkers deal? I were a bit worried about it. He so, said, well, actually, I can tell them, you know, the Chequers' deal actually got us rid of Boris. It couldn't be all bad. <laughs> <laughs> say another, like, really fun news, you know, Donald Trump is coming to London and, you know, there's going to be a big protest tomorrow, obviously. So are you going to that? It's so annoying because
3: I'm actually away at a festival tomorrow. Like, I'm the ultimate cliche of like, oh, politics, but oh I've got a festival to go to. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing I feel the most sorry for is the Queen. So the Queen has to have tea with Donald Trump tomorrow and I just feel so sorry for her because she must have thought she'd never have to have tea with another fascist after her uncle died and yet (laughs) here she is in that situation all over again (laughs) That's my favourite joke (laughs) Are you a fan of Trump? Love him Just fucking love him
2: mate
3: (laughs) Breath of fresh air
2: That's what I think (laughs) Just says it like it is Well
3: he got on with your president didn't he?
2: Uh, let's let's not let's not even talk <laughs> about that. Genuinely,
3: you gave him grooming and
2: everything. Oh, uh, these images like literally on my deathbed, I will just see Trump like flicking fake dandruff from Macron's shoulder. It will haunt my nightmares until the day I leave this mortal coil. With your
3: deep dive knowledge of the Johnsons, do you think Trump would fit in? If if we're going to have keeping up with the Johnsons, do you think Trump would make a good every now and then
2: character who could pop in would he fit in I'm not sure I didn't think so I mean I think he'd probably be a black China really So, you know kind of <laughs> unexpectedly turning up and you know in the and the Johnsons aren't really certain about it
3: <laughs> causing drama <Yeah. laughs> making his dollar dollar you're making me like him now this is bad. Yeah, so like,
2: yeah can I just apologize unreservedly to black China <laughs> you did not deserve this
3: <laughs> black China is actually a self-made you know person so uh, yes she's that over Trump any day of the week.
2: I was going to say and she's actually like Amber Rose's best mate which is great and nearly said she's Amber Rudd's best mate (laughs) which again is also a show I would watch by the way if anyone wants to commission
4: that.
2: So, the big topic we're tackling this week is immigration and the refugee crisis, and specifically the attitudes British people have towards people coming to the country.
3: Well, I have some stories about British people reacting negatively to immigrants, but they're
2: specifically just about me. Oh, what was your immigrant journey like?
3: Oh my God, it was just a classic. Imagine just Sharon and playing me. Uh, I arrived mid-noughties. I had to live in North Finchley for a while. Christ. I was sleeping on a Couch, it was really,
2: really brutal. Marie, what was yours like? How delayed was that Eurostar? Oh God, actually, weirdly not delayed, but uh, but yeah, no, I mean, so tough, you know, taking the train from my hometown to Paris, <sighs> taking a cab across <sighs> Paris from one station to the other, taking the Eurostar, and then actually taking another cab where the cab driver called me love, and yeah, no, awful, that he, like, you know go see several houses and end up in Swiss Cottage which is in fact <sighs> the single most borrowed bit in London. You know, I'm still still recovering from that in many ways, you know, nine years on. But isn't that, obviously there are loads of media tropes about refugees and immigrants. So if you
3: believe everything you read in the tabloids, immigrants are to blame for rising house prices, NHS funding shortfalls and the dumbing down of the BBC. So wow, us immigrants are busy
2: people. Take a day off, guys. This week we thought we'd tackle some of those tropes head on. We've got an interview with Hamada, a Syrian refugee who has come to the UK and we're going to try to answer some of the media's biggest questions and accusations with the first-hand experiences of someone who's actually lived through it all. So, Gronia, you're going to have to be our tabloid headline shelter providing the angriest anti-immigrant and refugee viewpoints. It's what I was born to do.
3: (laughs) And as we're actually recording this on July 12th an Irish person screaming angry things are very on point. <laughs> so why do people want to leave Syria? Why
2: don't they stay and fight? This is the first question people ask about refugees. We talked to Lord Dubbs who has done lots of work on refugees and was a refugee himself.
4: There are a number of reasons why people leave. It's fear of war, it's persecution, it's fear of torture and imprisonment. I was talking to a Syrian boy who'd seen his father killed in front of him in Aleppo. Pretty horrific stories threats from the Taliban to young men who'd, who'd fled westwards from Afghanistan. So a whole range of reasons. But mostly it's a combination of war, violence, threats and persecution. It's
2: too easy to get into Europe. We shouldn't give them an incentive. People then realise how hard it is to get here. We spoke to Hamada, a Syrian refugee who arrived in the UK a month ago.
5: It, it takes like uh, three weeks. You know media sometimes they are talking about when refugee pass to for example Greece, passed to Europe. Some guys they think it's like a tourism journey, but unfortunately it was like I can't say it a death journey because some guys they died in the sea, they, some guys they died in the in end the journey. So when I when I moved to Turkey and you ask how you can go for example to Greece, you see the smuggler and they take you in like in big truck. And big truck, they put like t- almost 200 person. And one truck, it's m- like small truck, not that big. You have just to be stand up. They drive you like maybe, uh, no, it's like some. When I was like five hours, you have to be standing. And it was horrible because there is no space to sit. Even even no standing because there is kids, there's families. No one told me about this. If I know this, really, I don't. So I'm not going to do it. But what happened? You have to do it. So... Then they put you in the, the small uh, boat, and almost like 40, sometimes 50. Like, there's kids, there's families. So, in that time, it was, the weather wasn't fine, because because we waited almost two days, because the weather was very bad. But we slept like two days there, no food. And I was amazed, like amazed, because... It was very horrible, very hard. I, did, I didn't know about that. I thought it's like tourism trip. You take the boat and you will go, no, it's not like this. So we were like almost 45. When the mini boat uh, worked with us and we are in the sea, they, like, they told us it takes like one hour. It takes more than that. And the first one hour, like the water ca- came in the boat. You feel like, oh, I'm going to die soon. I'm going to die soon. Why? Why? So what we we did, we caught like half a bottle of water and we tried to throw water out, throw water out. You need to save your life. So we did it first time, then it was okay. Then after like 15 minutes, the same, a big wave came in and then we started guys throw. They have some guys, some people, they have some bags. So they throw the bags out because you know the bags has, it's gonna be wet and they gonna be more heavy. So second time again, water, we throw the water, then the third time water, then you say okay, maybe we aren't safe, we are closed now. So after like another, like one hour, the machine stopped and we stuck. We tried to call the like, Turkish, uh, numbers like for emergency help us they didn't answer we tried to do the, the Greece one they didn't answer so one man he used to work like a mechanic so he tried with it like almost 15 minutes then it worked. so we landed in the Greece and there we saw some amazing uh, volunteers really they give us like some blanket they give us some like when you saw this in your eyes, when you see it, some guys that look after you, uh, self, you think they are like, look like angels. Then we, you have to move to Macedonia. We take like ferry to Athens from Athens. We talk to Macedonia, Macedonia. We feel like we aren't welcome there because they look at oh, we are strangers. Some even in our journey, some guys they think oh, we are like tourism. They ask you for money, but if, for example, you don't have money, so. We tried to move quickly as soon as possible, so, and we moved to Serbia. The same situation: if you need to go from Serbia to Croatia, you have even to pay more money. So from Croatia, we moved to Slovenia. So from Slovenia, we moved to Austria. To Austria was okay, not bad situation. But my like my plan just I want to go to like United Kingdom. So from Austria, we moved to. Germany. Then we moved to France, France to Calais. Now from Calais until the UK, this another ch- challenge. It was very hard.
3: Why did they want to come here? They could just stay in Hungary and Austria.
2: This is technically true, but there are reasons why people might want to come to the UK. Here are Lord Dubs in Hamada.
4: What is it about the U.K.? Well, sometimes it's a historic thing that they've long thought about the U.K. as being the place, if they can find safety, they'd like to go to. Sometimes they've got more sense of the English language than they have of other languages. Sometimes it's because they have relatives who've made it to the U.K. But I'm bound to say, because by the time they get to Calais, they're U.K.-bound if they can possibly do it. But talk to the people in the camps in Greece. The majority want to go to Germany. And I think Germany has now become much more of a target, partly because they know people in Germany, because of the numbers Germany has taken, partly because they have a sense the Germans look after them well. But the, but the UK still has this tremendous pull. I was at a place for child refugees in, in Belgium a few months ago, and they all, a lot of them, had set their sights on coming to the UK. So I think it's a combination of tradition, language, the sense that they have freedom here, and that there are no people here.
5: It was like a hope when I was almost in secondary school, when we started about, we used to study, even when we used to study English, I remember when they told us about UK, about especially England, London, how is human right there, how there is a Hyde park, and there is like a corner. In the Hyde Park, and you can take whatever you want, no one's gonna blame you, and you will get like this freedom. I say, oh my god. So, of course, I'm gonna, I wish if I'm gonna get
2: to England. They got to the jungle, why don't they just stay there? Well, they come because it's been destroyed, but Alf went to visit several refugee camps around Europe.
4: The first time when the jungle was there, quite a large area, there were, there were perhaps eight or nine thousand or more people living there, quite a few children, but mainly young men. And it was pretty depressing. Uh, There were ramshackle sort of tents and things. In the middle of the the jungle, there was a little shopping street, and they had on display tear gas canisters and rubber bullets. And I said, what were they for? Well, they said the French, then-French government tried to clear part of the camp. And to clear the people out, they used tear gas and rubber bullets. Why did they do that? Well, because the National Front are quite strong in that part of France, and the French government wanted to demonstrate they could be tough. Well, it seems to me you don't beat the National Front by behaving like they would. And then the third time I went, the jungle had been totally cleared, people had been dispersed, but some had made their way back to the Channel Coast and then they were just sleeping under trees. Now, in warm weather, sleeping under trees is tolerable but awful. In cold weather, it's very, very depressing indeed. This
2: isn't our problem. Well, it's a big problem and everyone needs to do their part.
4: Worldwide, there are probably over 30 million refugees plus about over 30 million displaced persons, that's people who fled for safety to another part of their own country. So it's about 65 million altogether. I don't know quite what the latest figures are in Syria. I know there are about 3 million in Turkey, a million in Jordan, a million in Lebanon, and that's 5 million, and uh, probably about a million have worked their way to Europe.
5: If you see the exploitation and the try, imagine what's going to happen, for example, for kids if they have in this situation, for example, in Greece, how many kids there are there and how many uh, women, girls there. But just imagine what, what this word means. Like, I'm, I'm young, uh, I'm a young uh, guy, and I, when I cross on, I used to see, I used to see really, unfortunately, so many like exploitation. This would happen in one country. They told me, I can't help you to get a passport for this European country. I'm not gonna name which country, but, you have to marry me. I, uh, excuse me. I would like, if I'm going to marry in the uh, future, I'm going to marry a girl. So I, he told me, in our country, the men can marry together. I say, yeah, but please. So this is what happened from, like, men, young men. So what about these kids? What they can see in, in their journey? Some guys, some people, some girls, they stuck, really. OK, so what can we do? Well, here's what Hamada said helped him. The hard thing is to fight accommodation in the beginning. Because at the beginning, yeah, they you came here, you you will find accommodation. They give it to you, but after when you get the visa, in 28 days, they told you you have to leave your room. So yeah, this is uh, like issue a big thing to worry about because if you have no friends, it's hard. Where, where do you go? In that time when I had this situation, I remember here in the UK, even especially there is a very good organization called Refugees at Home. If they see your situation, you need help. They try their best and really they help me to find like, even in the beginning you need to learn about language to find job. So this
2: is what they
5: helped me really. They did very good job.
2: And Lord Doves has four things he wants you to
4: do. One is that they should approach their MP and ask them whether they will go on giving support to Section 67 of the Immigration Act. Some people call it the Dubs Amendment, but the media have done that. I don't call it that, because the government put a cap on it at 480. And frankly, we believe local authorities are able to provide foster care support for more than that number. So point one is to ask them to keep Section 67 of the Immigration Act open, not allow the government to stop it. Secondly, we passed an amendment here recently that for children who have relatives here under the Dublin Treaty, we've passed a, an amendment to the leaving the EU bill to say the government must negotiate for us to continue to be part of the Dublin Treaty so children who have relatives in one EU country can join those in another, and once when, when we've left the EU, it should still be possible for those children who've got relatives here to come here as if we were in the EU under those provisions, OK? So that's the second ask. The third ask is that there is a limited scheme whereby britain takes refugees under the vulnerable person scheme from camps in lebanon jordan and turkey that scheme will come to an end in 2020 and they should people should ask their mps to keep the vulnerable the syrian vulnerable person scheme open so that we can go on bringing people a limited number of people from the region and fourthly I'd like people to uh, lobby their local councillors and their local authorities and ask them what they're doing to take refugees, to take both child refugees and to take refugee families.
3: So that's what you can do this week. If you can donate even a little bit of money to Refugees at Home, they will help refugees get on their feet. Their website is Home.
2: You can also donate phone credit to refugees in Calais through phone credit for refugees at pc4r.org because imagine spending three weeks getting to Calais from Syria. How much would it mean to speak to your mum? And it's so easy. Text C-A-L-A 85 plus the amount
3: you want to donate. For example, C-A-L-A 85, pound sign five two seven zero zero.
2: 70. And don't forget to contact your MP or local council like Lord Dove's Asked. That's it from us. We'll be back with more ways you can help change things next week. Bye.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership.